I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is someone who, despite being the CEO of a very prominent publicly quoted global specialty insurer and reinsurer, has been keeping himself out of the media spotlight for the last couple of years. This is because, like many other leaders in our world, Albert Benchimol, CEO of Axis, has been busy overseeing underwriting remediation and a wholesale reset of his business's strategic positioning as the market has transitioned. Now I'm delighted to announce that he's come out the other side and has agreed to be on the show. The Albert I encountered in this episode was someone looking forward to the future with a lot of energy, optimism and enthusiasm. No subjects were off the menu, so after swiftly polishing off the elephant in the room topic of Axis's widely publicised decision to pull out of property reinsurance, we expanded out into a really broad discussion that encompasses rate adequacy, the rise of the MGA, inflation, ESG and industry diversity to name but a few. Albert's now been CEO of Axis for over a decade, and it's that experience and sense of authority that I think shines through every minute of this lively encounter. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Albert, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Happy to be here. I've got to ask you the first question, something I'm sure you've been asked a huge amount recently because it's sort of a topic that everyone's been talking about, and that is the decision to pull out of property reinsurance entirely. Take us through the thought process that ended up in that decision. Well, Mark, as you know, over the last few years, we've embarked on a successful transformation of our business. And our recent actions are all focused on aligning our resources to advance leadership and specialty underwriting. So we're investing in a strong specialty insurance and specialty reinsurance business, all with the goal of enhancing the value that we offer our customers and partners in distribution. We want to grow a stronger overall book of business and ultimately generate consistent, profitable results with lower volatility. So I, I want to underscore, you know, we're committed to reinsurance and to smart growth in our go-forward areas of reinsurance. And that includes obviously casualty, specialty, AH credit, you know, reinsurance. But ultimately, the volatility from property cat reinsurance just was not consistent with the business that we're trying to build here at Axis. And so as we look forward uh, to our kind of a multi-year look forward planning process, we just couldn't find the right intersection of a CAD book that was large enough to support the investment that you need to do it right, but small enough so that the volatility wouldn't overwhelm our specialty insurance results. And so at the end of the day, the rational course was actually to do a full exit of property CAD. And so we did that. And we think that going forward, it's going to be overall a much better book for the organization. And importantly, I think it's clarity to our customers and to our brokers about our sustainable risk appetite going forward. So it wasn't really about price then. Some people would assume that 
perhaps property reinsurance over the cycle hasn't really been paying what it needs to pay. Are you saying it's more of just it was the volatility play? You couldn't handle the volatility and what you just said, you couldn't write enough to make it worth doing properly. But at the same time, if you did a small amount, it was there, it could bite you. That's exactly right, Mark. I mean, I've said this uh, many times that our exit from property cat is not a call on the property cat market. In fact, I believe that the party cat market is going to be quite hard at January 1 and it'll <laughs> probably be quite firm for the next few years. It's a call on what kind of company do we want access to be? And we want access to be a specialty insurer with low volatility. And unfortunately, the two just don't live well together. So someone asks you, well, why are you pulling back now that prices are finally rising and are rising pretty firmly? Uh, you say, well, it's just not about that. No, not at all. And paradoxically on the dice, obviously pulling out of a line, theoretically, mathematically, one would assume it, it gives you a diversification cost rather than a benefit. Presumably, you're saying it's outweighed by volatility. Well, first of all, we already have such a widely diversified book of business, and we do have some property cat exposure through our specialty insurance book. Yeah. So it's not like we don't get the benefit of that. If you look back several years, I would argue that our problem was not that we were underexposed cat for diversification, but that we were overexposed cat for volatility. And so what we're bringing ourselves down now is to a place where we think we've got very good diversification in the book of business but better balance and less volatility. And at the end of the day, that's really what matters. What do you say to people, though, who say that property reinsurance is an absolute core line and using the example of going into a shop, into a store to buy some food, and you say, well, all stores need to stock bread and milk and eggs. And to say, well, if I go into the Axis store, hang on a minute, I haven't got eggs and I haven't got milk and I haven't got bread. I need to go somewhere else for that. I mean, there are stores that sell milk and eggs, and there are patisseries that sell croissant and cakes, but no <laughs> egg and no milk. So I, I think it's what kind of store do you go to? And does that store give you the highest quality product for what they're selling? Yeah. In our case, it's about being very clear with our producers and our customers as to what our uh, sustainable risk appetite is going forward and delivering the best product and the best service that we can for those lines of business. So it's kind of like, go to Walmart if you want that kind of commoditized stuff. But if you want the specialized stuff, you've got to come into my more boutique establishment. I think that's fair. And again, I, I want to be clear that I'm not espousing of you as to what other establishments should be doing. I think there are business models that work for different companies that align their skills, their resources, their expertise with the market opportunities that they see. And they should absolutely pursue that. In our case... It's clear that over the last decade, we've developed our specialty underwriting skills to the point where we believe we have an opportunity to be best in class. And that is what we want to do. And we see plenty of opportunity for us to grow, to grow profitably, to serve our customers, to serve our producers in the specialty underwriting space. So looking forwards, what is this axis that you want to project out to those brokers and to ultimate customers? So we're focused on advancing leadership and specialty underwriting. And we have all the resources and capabilities to deliver solutions and value to our customers and partners in distribution, including, I'm very happy to add, market-leading claims capabilities. So over the last several years, we've developed capabilities, and we now have a very clear and sustainable risk appetite that we can communicate to our brokers and customers. And we're very clear about what we want to do. We're in the US ENS and wholesale lines of business. We're in the London market specialty business. We provide the whole range of professional lines through both retail and wholesale channels. And of course, we provide international reinsurance. 
But in all of those sectors, we distinguish ourselves through our expertise in specialty underwriting and in our service. So you want people to come and ask you to quote and lead business because you want those brokers to know and to believe that you're the best in those classes. That's what we're doing now. We lead a very, very large chunk of our business. And where we're not, we're a highly influential follower. So we think that we're very, very well positioned with our producers in terms of share of wallet, share of market, in terms of quality perceptions. And our job is we got to do better. You know, We've got to continue to improve on that and improve our offering. At the end of the day, we want to be viewed as a leader in specialty risk, and we want to deliver top quintile performance. So that's the core goals. Do you feel that you're already sort of there? In which case, you just need to execute and continue to execute. And you know, it's a continual process, keeping on top of things and staying at the top. Do you feel that you're already positioned then with this final move? That's right, Mark. I think we've made all of the big moves, if you would. We've been very clear about our goals. Now, there's still a journey to get there in terms of achieving the level of performance that we want to achieve. There's some route to go in terms of the level of volume that we think we can achieve in these markets. But in terms of our strategic direction of our alignment in the organization, we're in the right area. Now, obviously, we talked about delivering outstanding service and being a leader in specialty risk and being a top quintile performer. And you cannot do any of that if you don't have a strong culture and a strong team. And so an important goal of ours is literally to be a talent magnet, to be a destination of choice for talent, because without the talent, we will not be able to deliver the quality of service that we want to deliver to our customers and partners in distribution. So you're in a huge variety of different classes. Where are you happiest most at the moment in terms of the growth that's coming on and also the rate adequacy that you're getting? We're in the fortunate position of having the vast majority of our book of business is still providing very attractive opportunities. There's a handful of lines or markets that are not quite seeing what we want to see, but by and large, it really looks all good and subject to normal risk limits and diversification, portfolio optimization limits, we've got an appetite for growth in just about all of the lines in which we are. What we're seeing today probably is public DNO has backed off a little bit. Frankly, my view of the risk is I don't understand it going down that much. So we've actually shrunk that a little bit, but that's kind of the exception to the rule, if you would. But I suppose that came off a big hardening, didn't it? It was a probably two, 300% hardening that happened very quickly. Maybe it was an overreaction. Well, I think it needed it, right? But I think the other thing that we need to look at is, on the one hand, I understand what the drivers are. We've had very good price increases over a couple of years. There's a significant reduction in demand now that there are less SPACs and less IPOs in the market. There have been less claims being filed. Maybe that's a reversal of the prior trend, or maybe that's just a temporary thing. And there's a lot more carriers interested in that space. So I can understand why competitive pressures would push us there. On the other hand, We also have to recognize that the last couple of years are not necessarily predictive to what the world will be going forward. I mean, we're still in a post-COVID world, and we don't know what that will do. Secondly, I think we have to recognize that social inflation is a real factor. But more importantly, I think with the growth of ESG, we're seeing that there are more demands for reporting on ESG, which leads to potential risks of misreporting or greenwashing, as it's called. But we're also seeing, very interestingly, is that activists are now more engaged in suing boards and suing companies to try and promote their actions. So there are a number of factors that we see that could drive additional risk going forward. And so we believe that these trends all call for caution in pricing and reserving for public DNO. Well, you mentioned ESG. That's definitely on my list of questions I was planning on asking you later, but we might as well talk about it now. Many in the market are describing ESG 
and all the changes and transitions it's going to bring about as being a really great opportunity for underwriters. And do you agree with that assessment or do you think we're being over-optimistic? Because obviously it could be negative. You've mentioned some of the negatives, of course, public liability and DNO, those kind of classes with greenwashing and potential claims. Do you think the benefits are going to outweigh any of the negatives? So I think you really have to take ESG and its individual components. I've got the environmental, the social, yeah, and the yeah. governance. And you know, we spoke about the potential governance issue around reporting. And of course, it's your own reporting. You know, you've got your own fiduciary duties. And of course, there are activists targeting you as an insurer, of course, as you're fully aware. We've had protests in Lime Street outside Lloyd's of anti-coal protesters, that kind of thing. I think that's true. And I think you'll see activism in the industry for the moment. I have to say, we've got a very constructive relationship with a number of the environmental groups. I think they're looking at some of the moves that we've made with regard to our own actions, with regards to our coal policy, for example, the fact that we are promoting products that advance the greening of the industry. And that's where the opportunity is. So you were talking about the opportunity. There is no doubt that there is climate change and we can debate whether or not it's purely humanity led or it's a combination of natural cycles that are accelerated by humanity. But either way, we as people living in this planet, the only home that we have, need to find a way to create resilience and to find a way to transition to a low carbon economy. That's creating new industries, new business, new projects, all of which require insurance. And if we're going to be a forward-looking organization, we want to position ourselves for growth in the demand that's going to come. And one of the things that I'm very proud of is the fact that we are a leader in renewable energy. So several years ago, we saw that this was going to create a demand for more investment in renewable energy, obviously insurance. And so today we're a leader in renewable energy, and that is the, exactly the kind of opportunity, Mark, that you're referring to. And so we're very happy with that. And I think that as we have more projects, you know, as we get into carbon capture, as we get to new products, batteries, hydrogen, that's all going to create new opportunities. So the environmental piece, I really do believe is an opportunity much more so than a challenge. I think on the social piece, I think we as an industry have not covered ourselves in glory. I think that if you look at the top of both our organization and the industry in general, we don't have sufficient diversity in those roles. And I think we have an obligation to step it up. And I think that the first thing we need to do is make sure that we recruit a diverse talent pool at the early levels of the organization from colleges, from school, and keep developing and investing in that talent pool to create a pipeline to the point where it's no longer an issue. But as an industry, we're not there yet. And that's something that we need to continue to work on. On that side of things, I mean, what are you doing to help address those problems and the S part in your own organization? Some of the most common reasons cited for perhaps, you know, gender disparity at high levels of an organization, again, which I agree with you wholeheartedly, all you have to do is scroll down my podcast, which is mostly CEOs, and you'll see people who look rather like you and rather like me, Albert. And it's a bit depressing when I scroll down for two whole screens and that there's not enough people who don't look like us. So what are you doing that's better than your competitors, would you say? to help lead this? For example, particularly females leaving the workplace, perhaps when children come along and just at the moment when their career might be taking off. Yeah. So the first thing that I want to say is I don't know that I would position ourselves as, quote, doing anything better than anybody else. I think we all have our journey to take and certainly we're committed to our journey. But to your point, it's got to be a multi-strategy that you put in place to move forward. So let's talk about that. Again, number one, I think we're not going to solve centuries of discrimination in three or four years. And the first thing we need to do is we need to create a very healthy pipeline of diverse talent. Back to going to schools and explaining to people how exciting the insurance industry is. And 
making sure that we recruit them and invest in them and mentor them and build that pipeline over time. That's number one. Number two, we've made it a commitment that whenever we have an important position, we've got to create a broadly diverse slate. And we have to challenge ourselves that, yes, we have good people here, but let's use this opportunity to go outside and see what's out there. Now, that doesn't mean that we will always have a diverse candidate taking the job. We want the best candidate, but we want to make sure that we include every opportunity to meet the great diverse talent that is in this industry and see if we can provide an opportunity for them here. But to your point, there are a, a ton of really good programs. So as you know, there's a return to work program in London right now. Yep. And so we've been participating in that program and providing opportunities for our mothers coming back to the workforce after having been out for a few years. And that's a very exciting program. And we're really pleased with the people that we've brought on board. Obviously, we're an active promoter of Dive In. We have ERGs, employee resource groups in the organization, and it includes women, people of color, veterans, parents, LGBTQ+. And again, it's giving them an opportunity to feel that at Axis, they can be their whole selves, they can be respected, and they can reach out and work with other people who are like them to work in a more diverse group. So we're trying to do all of those things. And my guess is we'll continue to explore new approaches to enhance both the quality and diversity of the culture and the diversity of our talent pool going forward. Well, okay, going back into ESG more generally, because it's going to permeate everything. It's going to be your clients are going to be wanting to see that you're an ESG approved supplier. Obviously, regulators are going to get their hooks into all of us. And we're going to have to spend a lot of time, I presume, asking questions of each other. I presume you're going to say yes, that we'd need some kind of common framework to do this. And obviously, within our industry, it being a globalized industry, that it might need some global common standards and frameworks. Otherwise, one would presume it would be quite frustrating if a Marsh broker asked 50 questions of you, an Aon broker asked 50 questions of you, or that you asked 50 questions of an Aon broker, and then Munich Re asked 57 questions in a slightly different format. And we could all be in a complete mess before we knew it. So do you think we need a common framework? And do you think we're going to get it anytime soon? Or is it just over the horizon, do you think? So I fully agree with you that a common framework just makes it easier for everybody to have metrics that are comparable period over period and against other companies. And frankly, a little bit of competition, you know, who's doing what? If everybody's measuring performance differently, then it becomes almost impossible. And to your point around the inefficiencies of doing our various tests around measuring the carbon intensity of our portfolio, measuring the carbon intensity of our supply chain, measuring the output of our greenhouse gases, for example. So all of those things benefit from standardization. And I think that there are a number of attempts right now to get there. It's a little bit like VHS and Betamax back in the <laughs> old days. You know, I think at some point one will ultimately win, but I think we have a couple of competing ideas and areas in the industry. But ultimately, I think it's to all of our benefit to have a generally consistent global framework. Are you confident we're going to get that at some point? I am because necessity is a great motivator. And I think that nobody wants to deal with an inefficient and murky world for something as important as measuring progress on ESG. And I presume also that G part is, of course, a lot of that for governance is disclosure, isn't it? And I suppose if you can't be certain how much CO2 you and your underwriters are emitting, then I suppose you'd probably err on the side of not disclosing it because you don't want to be accused of greenwashing if you get it wrong. <laughs> That's right. But you know, when I think of governance, I also just think about how we make decisions and ultimately who we report to. And I think about my directors, and my directors will be on three or four different boards. Can you imagine if they're on three or four different boards, all of which provide different metrics and different ways of measuring? 
they have no ability to come to us and say, look, Albert, I think you should think about doing it this way or you're lagging some of my other boards if everybody measures differently. So it's actually a real benefit to our independent board members to be able to share metrics that are relatively standardized so that they can use their experience, their broad view of what's happening in the world and say, okay, given my experience, given what I see, I can now position where you are at Axis. And by the way, I think you're doing well here. I think you should do a little bit more there. But if everybody uses it differently, it's actually more difficult to govern because you don't know what to measure. Do you think we're going to sort out ourselves as an industry before a regulator sorts us out on the regulator's behalf? Let's just say that it would be to our benefits to do so. (laughs) And look, I think there are a lot of things that are moving forward. As you know, Lloyd's is moving forward in measuring the carbon intensity of underwriting portfolios. And I think that they're in a great position because there are multiple carriers involved at Lloyd's. And so that's a great place to start. And so perhaps they have a bit of a head start there and we can see things going there. You know, the brokers are all trying to measure what are the requirements of an acceptable pathway to a low carbon transition. And so that's great because it'd be wonderful if we could all say, okay, these companies are carbon intense today, but they're doing the three things that we're looking for to move to a low carbon standard. And because of that, we should support them in their journey. Yeah. As opposed to saying, you know, because they're dirty today, we shouldn't do business with them. Quite the opposite. Our job is to help people transition from a high carbon economy to a low carbon economy. And so again, it'd be great to be able to say, these people are trying hard, they're meeting the standards, let's support them in their journey. Let's get back to the market. Obviously, you've transitioned into specialty. It's been a great place to be. Obviously, we've had a higher percentage of business moving into ENS, into specialty markets generally around the world. Do you think this is one of these cyclical things that ebbs and flows and comes and goes? Or is there something more secular at work here? My personal view is that there is a secular move and then that's accelerated, if you would, in some cases by cyclical moves. So if you look at the ENS market, the ENS market in the US since 2005, at least, has been grown at a much faster pace than the commercial insurance world. Yeah. And why is that? Well, there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of innovation, by the way. So a lot of new industries that are out there that are not necessarily well covered by the standard commercial world, number one. Number two is that as large commercial insurers become larger through acquisition, they tend to focus on productivity and efficiency. And when they do that, they find that small books of business that are complex, that require a lot of human engagement, individual negotiation, and so on, to them at that point almost becomes not worth the money. It's just not big enough for a multi-billion dollar company to worry about a highly complex several hundred million dollar book of business. And so they kind of walk away from that over time. It moves into the ENS market, but that's our target zone. And so it's great for us. And so we've seen that our target market has actually grown over the last several years. Now, within that secular change, there will be some acceleration of risk going into the ENS and wholesale market as markets firm and standard carriers get a little bit tighter. And then over time, they'll start to get back into it. So there is some cyclicality, but I would say that the longer term trend is that we're seeing more complex business go into the ENS and wholesale market. And that's really good for access because that's what we do best. Yes. If these guys can't make 100 million books of business, if you aggregate a few of those, pretty soon you're talking about something that probably is worth investing in and having the expertise to do. That's exactly right. Another thing that's been explosive growth, probably part of the same trend, is this massive growth we've had in these hybrid and fronting carriers, partly because of MGA, backing MGAs and then connecting them to reinsurance and other capital. What do you think is behind that? Again, is that a cyclical or secular thing? 
big numbers have come out very quickly, which is often slightly a red flag, one might say, but I'd love to have your view on it. I think it's a little bit of follow the money. I think that we've seen that in recent years, MGA valuations have increased substantially. And so there's a lot of entrepreneurial interest in creating MGAs to take advantage of this investor interest in MGAs. That would be number one. And I think that number two is the fact that in the last few years, we've had a firming market and that would create some opportunities for new capacity to come in. Number three, I would say that if you look at the distribution of our industry, there's been significant concentration in the top five in both the retail and the wholesale markets. You know, Marche on Willis, you know, Amwins, CRC, RT, for example. And there's probably not much more growth opportunity through market share gains for those brokers. And so how do they drive growth? And so they're driving growth by working into growth of the MGA markets. And if you're looking at the MGAs today, some of the largest MGAs are part of large brokers. Yeah. So for them, it's the next level of growth. And then finally, there's interest in reinsurers and providers of capacity to access risk. And the MGA is a very quick way to access risk and grow a book of business. But you're not in any way responsible for this by backing some of these MGAs, or do you feel you have to be agnostic? If there's a good proposition, you should always underwrite it, I presume, as long as it fits your appetites. We actually have a position on MGAs. If you're going to be a specialty underwriter, the first thing you ask yourself is, how do I add value? And we add value through the quality of our underwriters and the problem solvings and the solutions they offer. So by and large, where we have the capability in-house to provide solutions through our underwriters, that is our first choice. Now, there will be some markets where we may not have the right expertise or our appetite for that risk is sufficiently small that we couldn't afford to put in all the right expertise to do it right. Or there are some markets where certain program managers have a preferred access to a client base that we could naturally achieve through our brokerage. So in those three areas, we're happy to work with program managers and MGAs because it complements our book of business that we write through our underwriters. But we will not want to give capital to an MGA to compete with our own underwriters. And you wouldn't start an MGA unit, a specific MGA unit. Other carriers have done. That's not the sort of thing you do? We have a program unit to manage our program managers, of course, because there is absolutely a role for program managers and MGAs within our portfolio. Yeah. But it is to complement the capabilities that we have in-house through our underwriters. But you wouldn't be sort of actively incubating, encouraging those to exist? We do not do that. Obviously, we were talking about the growth of specialty and the nature of risk changing. And of course, I think the poster child for that would be cyber. It couldn't be more specialty and it couldn't be more relevant to today a naturally growing risk that as the digital world has come into view and has taken over our lives in many ways. And you're a market leader in cyber. I've had Dan Truman on the show twice, and he's certainly one of the elder statesmen of that marketplace. I was wondering, it seems that that's a market that could eventually hit the buffers on growth because it may run out of capacity at some point. And obviously the key to unlocking the capacity might be something like ILS, but also in order to get that, we need to get a handle on systemic risk in cyber and to get new investors and new capital comfortable with that risk. Like in the way that in the mid nineties, the work that RMS and AIR did got new capital comfortable with property cat risk. They felt it was being properly measured and properly priced and properly understood 
How close do you think we are in cyber to unlocking that new capacity that we probably will need if we're going to keep growing at this rate? Well, let me first just comment on your question. So I absolutely agree that cyber is going to be a very, very important, if not the most important line going forward. You know, my view is that cyber is to the 21st century what property was to the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. And there's huge demand, number one. Number two, thank you so much for recognizing Dan Truman and our cyber team. We really do have what I think is a world-class cyber organization. But to your point, cyber has for almost all time been profitable on a nutritional basis. But two, three years ago, I think those of us who are specialists in the field were developing more models and developing these tail scenarios. And that's where we started to be concerned as to the potential size of the tail scenarios. Now, there's been a lot of progress in modeling over the last two, three years. And I'm happy to say that the view today, the majority view today, is that the tail scenarios are probably less painful than we would have feared two years ago. So that's a positive. But we also have to recognize that this is modeling, that there isn't 100 years of experience in this. And more importantly, that this is not about luck. This is about defending yourself against bad actors who spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, looking for ways to harm you. And so we need to have that humility as we think about the risk. And so therefore, there are a number of tail scenarios that require significant capacity. And so our industry needs to gather more capacity in support of cyber, and in particular for the tail scenarios. And to your point, I think that we need to first gather all of the capacity that's available in the insurance and the reinsurance space. Then we're going to need to find ways to generate an ILS market that can gather a significant amount of funds. And at some point, we may need some sort of partnership with governments, public-private partnerships, to provide that capacity. And we have to work through all of those. And I think that we're still at the early stages of doing that. But this is another example where everybody in the world is incentivized to find the capacity solution for cyber, whether it's the brokers who want to place it, it's the insurance carriers who want to participate in that, and even governments who want to make sure that their economies are protected in the event of a tail scenario. So my hope is that we will ultimately get there. I think we're all trying to find ways to do it. It's still in the early stages. But I have a great belief that given the unity of need for a solution, that we will ultimately find one. Do you think with governments, you have to wait for the actual tail loss to appear before activity happens? Yes, I have to say, I've been actually quite disappointed at the lack of engagement of governments, even with the pandemic. When we were in the middle of COVID, there was still no interest in saying, well, how do we make sure we're ready for the next one? And by the way, and while we're thinking about that, why don't we talk about both COVID or another health pandemic and cyber, because it's basically the same principles. We've now learned that there are risks that know no geographical boundary and that don't necessarily work with traditional exposure management tools. So how do we deal with that? Where the world is today, I have to say, politicians seem to have their heads focused on a million other things. But I go back and remember the value of the aviation programs in TRIA, post-World Trade Center. Let's be honest, the insurance space was absolutely frozen. And with TRIO and the government saying, look, We need you to do this. We want you to do this. And if it's big enough, we'll help you. And that really released the entrepreneurial juices of the insurance industry. And it got back into the aviation market and allowed planes to get back in the air. It provided property insurance and so on. And to this day, TRIA never paid a single penny on a loss. In London, you've got Pool Re, again, providing 
comfort that if anything big happens, Poolry is there. And as you know, over these last few years, Poolry has built a significant surplus. So there is an opportunity to provide that accelerant to allow the insurance industry to do its best work. And ultimately, if we do it right, private enterprise will provide the majority of the solution. But I think a little help wouldn't hurt. Obviously, governments are always busy, and you can imagine they're pretty busy. We just have the pandemic, and now we're having this post-pandemic inflationary period, the likes of which we haven't seen since the late 70s or perhaps mid to late 80s. How are you responding to global inflation? What are the sort of benign scenarios that might happen, and what are the worst ones, and how are you preparing for all of those? Well, the most important issue around inflation is you've got to monitor it and just stay on top of it. This is something that you absolutely cannot let loose, because once it goes ahead of you, it becomes very, very difficult to catch up, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that I believe that rate actions will continue in the foreseeable future, because this industry has a pretty good track record of managing with inflation once it's aware that it's present. Really important for us in the insurance industry is to monitor the actual price of exposures to avoid underinsurance. That's really important. Secondly, is to monitor the loss trends and make sure that we price and ultimately reserve appropriately for those loss trends. And as long as we can stay on top of that, as we have, I believe that we can do very well. I think that the best scenario, if you will, is that over time, inflation recedes, we get more comfortable with loss trends, pricing increases can reduce, and the losses that we are paying today stay within the carried reserves that we set up for prior years. Because obviously in the prior years, we weren't projecting for the highest inflation in 40 years coming up in 21, 22, 23. So that's the best scenario. The worst scenario is that inflation continues at these high levels. Number one, it's very likely that at that point, some of the reserves set for prior year claims may prove to be insufficient, for which the industry will have to then add to reserves. And then the other issue is that the insurance industry would then have to play catch up in terms of measuring exposure and pricing for lost trends. Yeah. And that would mean that you know, we're going to be chasing ourselves, and that would mean several steps of pricing increases to correct and rebalance the portfolios. And sometimes things like that do come with some limits in capacity as people try to understand the risks that they go through. Do we get into a political risk scenario? Because obviously, when you're compounding increases, obviously, oil and gas companies and energy companies are really not popular at the moment as people's bills are going through the roof. We wouldn't want to add ourselves to that list of sort of public enemies uh, as an industry, would we? To be saying, well, not only my gas bill's just gone up, and obviously the price I pay at the pumps has just gone up, and now my insurance is going up 50% as well. I appreciate what you're saying. I would say, however, that our industry, number one, has never shined with excess profitability. So I think <laughs> that we, we can demonstrate what we're doing. But more importantly, our social purpose in insurance is to mutualize risk. It's not to subsidize risk. And at the end of the day, if there is inflation, it's a societal problem and we all have to manage it. And what we do in the insurance industry is we take like-minded risk bearers and go, as a group, you folks are going to pay $500 million in claims over the next year. So my job is to collect from you a little bit over $500 million so that I can ultimately redistribute those premiums into the claims that are out there. We can't go to these people and say, you're going to pay $500 million in claims and we'll charge you 400 That is not our social purpose. But to your point, one of the things that I feel really good about at Axis is that because we are in the ENS and wholesale world, we actually have a little bit more pricing freedoms than some of the more traditional personal and standard commercial lines. Yeah. Obviously, when you're talking about redistributing premiums, you were very vocal on this three or four years ago before the pandemic. I remember chairing you in a conference, very vocal on this question of the expense ratio of the industry. 
and how too much of that premium was being spent on administering and distributing those insurance policies. So, you know, too much of that 500 million was going to the brokers and our own costs. We've had progress on that. Of course, observers might say that's due to price increases. Has any of that progress on expenses been secular rather than cyclical? So I think there's a combination of both cyclical and secular. So I think on the cyclical, generally in a hard market, commissions tend to stay flat or go down. So from a brokerage commission basis, that's been quite good over the last two, three years. In a soft market, commissions tend to go up. That's just natural. But I think the encouraging longer term trend is the use of technology, digital data and analytics to accelerate processes, to achieve core sustainable efficiencies. And I think we're still very early on in, in the process of doing that. Albert, you say technology was at the early stages, so you expect a lot more to come. There are a lot of digital initiatives that are just really getting going now. Are you optimistic that we're in a good point now that some of these investments are really going to produce some serious returns and we're going to start knocking points off? Absolutely. I really do believe that there is progress to come. Now, it's not going to cut our GNA ratio in half, but I think there is an opportunity to see over several years the shaving of one or two or three points as we go forward. And my hope is that the carriers do that, but also the brokers. And as the brokers achieve their efficiency, they may be able to sustain their margins and their return on capital with less absolute commission rates. And ultimately, we can take all of those savings and give it back to our customers, ultimately through a higher loss ratio. My view has been and continues to be that we can increase the attractiveness of our line of business if we can demonstrate to our clients that the majority of their premiums ultimately go back to them in claims and that we do that efficiently. If we go to an industry group and say, we're going to pay you less than 50% of your premiums in claims, what they're going to say is, thanks very much, we'll create our own mutual. We got to demonstrate to them that it is a strong value proposition, and we can deliver that value proposition by being efficient in the way we deliver our product. Are you optimistic about intermediaries competing away or becoming efficient enough to get rid of a lot of their commissions? And some prominent brokers are quite vocal on this. Someone like David Howden has said that as the market digitizes, some of our commissions will tend almost to zero because there'll be zero frictional costs. And we'll end up with more like when you go on the stock exchange, you know, when you go and buy stocks and shares, you can go to Robinhood and you don't have to pay anything. Do you think that brokers are going to resist that right until the end? I think competition will serve its purpose. And I think ultimately, it's going to be difficult to convince customers that if it costs you X to deliver a product that you should be charging 5x or 10x. So I think we'll let competition do it. I want to be very clear. There's a lot more value that brokers provide than simply the transactional piece. It's the advisory piece, the structuring piece. And so they deserve to be adequately compensated for that. But if there are efficiencies to be made, ultimately, it should be the customer who benefits from that. One last question. Obviously, sadly, we're just coming through six months since the beginning of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Is that a big watershed kind of loss, do you think? Or is it just a business as usual loss for anyone who's in the business of underwriting war or political risk? So unfortunately, I think of the Ukraine war as business as usual. And when you think about it, over the last couple of years, we've had COVID, we've had the Ukraine war, and we've had significant inflation. But to me, what it reminds us of is the role that we play in the global economy. And you know, we stand behind our customers, we support our customers, and that's where the value of the industry is. But what COVID and Ukraine and inflation remind us of is we are at the receiving end of risk. And so as insurance carriers, it's important for us to understand that we are taking risk and therefore that we price for it properly, that we reserve for it properly, and that we put enough capital behind us so that we can continue to provide the very valuable 
service that we provide to the economy. So we can't go but for Ukraine, but for inflation, but for COVID, but for high cats. This is our business. And we need to stand by our customers, but our customers need to understand also that we need to price appropriately for those risks because we intend to deliver on our promise when the loss comes. Well, I think that seems like a really good place to end, Albert. I really want to thank you for giving up the time. And I hope we don't wait another two and a half years before you come on the show. I've, I've missed talking to you, so I'm really glad to have reconnected after all this time. Thank you so much and good luck with everything. Come back and give us a full report. Mark, I look forward to it. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.